Dr. Nicole Fleetwood is an educator and author whose work explores Black cultural history, visual, media, and gender studies, and mass incarceration. She earned her bachelor's in philosophy from Miami University and her PhD from Stanford University. Fleetwood currently serves as an associate professor of American studies and art history at Rutgers University and is a member of their press editorial committee. She has also been published in several scholarly journals, co-curated exhibitions on art and mass incarceration, and received prestigious grants and fellowships from the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Fellowship the Schomburg Center for Research on Black Culture, and many more. Nicole Fleetwood, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. So we're, we're speaking now on the occasion of the publication and exhibition of your book, Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Why was it important for you to, to do this now? It feels really like my life's work. It just feels like I, this is what I was meant to do at this period in my life for like the past decade, you know, um, I have felt so um, energized and compelled to do this work. And um, people often say, well, isn't it depressing to spend so much time on any topic related to prisons and mass incarceration? And of course, it's, it's dire, it's urgent that we address um, the carceral state and the various ways that it destroys people's lives. Um, and at the same time, I've been unbelievably inspired by the creativity and aesthetic practices and the art making that's taking place among people who are, un you know, living under some of the worst, most punitive systems um, that we have in modern life. Oh, I think it's so important too, and I think it's so important for the also the students participating in this project too. I think it's important for readers to know because you ultimately you're an academic, you're you're a writer, you're a voice, you're a voice for these other voices. I like the craft of writing, and I spent a lot of time on the writing of the book, um, and just thinking about how to structure it, and even thinking about the chapters, and really wanting the writing to sensitive to the artwork and to the experiences of the people who were willing to share with me and there was no way for me like from experience to recreate what it means the stakes of making art in prison and the only way that I can even get a glimpse of that was to like have these accumulation of voices of people telling me all the different kinds of risk-taking and it's really made working hearing them and learning from them really made me start thinking about um, the risk in creativity is very different ways. But like, the stakes are so high in prison. I mean, to make art can lead to a longer sentence depending on like what kind of materials you use. If you're using confiscated materials or items that are considered state property, you can be punished. And that punishment could even be going to solitary confinement or having your uh, sentence extended or other types of, of punishment. Um, so the, the risks involved are so great, um, and, and, and yet people are compelled to create. The real sign of an artist is someone who, who will do it, you know, whatever the penalty. Um, and, and it seems sort of absurd that something that you do uh, out of love or bearing witness could be penalized, you know? Some of the people I interviewed in the book um, were identified.
identified as artists before they went to prison. Some of them had even gone to art school or, you know, they, they had been known um, in their teen years or the early adult years for their, for their like drawing skills or for graffiti and, and things of that sort. But many of them, I would say a, a, a large amount of them um, started to self-identify as artists inside prison and it, in some ways it was a strategic identification because it it was a way of getting or distancing themselves from the label of inmate or prisoner or convict or felon or offender you know all these really punitive and negative terms that the state had placed on them that their you know their primary status in prison is as someone being punished for doing wrong and, and being labeled a bad subject. And so claiming the status of the artist and cultivating one's skill as an artist or skills as an artist became like a way of claiming penal time and, and remaking that time into something completely different. Um, and some of them literally talked about turning prison into an art school. I mean, these are beautiful works of art, very personal, but very, very beautiful. There's a real reason for them to be made. Much of the art is deeply personal. When I started the project, I didn't know that I was going to be writing an entire chapter, for example, on portraiture. The making of portrait is a, is a very a deeply personal experience for the artist and for the sitter. And in prison, portraits are probably the most common form of art. And I would even say, like, graphite portraits it might even be the most common among portraits because all you need is a pencil and a piece of paper. And what I say throughout the book is that for any artist in prison, uh, one of the greatest challenges um, is just getting access to material. So incarcerated artists are always, like, they're, you know, they're almost preoccupied by, like, how am I going to get material to make this work? Um and with portraits, on top of, you know, the, the kind of um, scarcity of materials to, like, in, in the type of portraits that artists are making, it's a real way of claiming identity against criminal indexes. And by criminal indexes, I mean mugshots or prison ID photos. So when incarcerated artists make portraits, they're working against those criminal indexes. They're trying, they're working to create much more complex representation of themselves or of other incarcerated people or of their loved ones than just someone who is being punished by the state. In that way, you know, it's, it's deeply personal, it's deeply interior. Um, it really is about kind of subject making under the conditions of being an unfree person. How do you assert, how do you identify, how do you represent while you're still held in punitive captivity? I think there's so many things you must have considered much more deeply than I have about why, how we can reform uh, this the penal system. From the very beginning, prisons have been a failure. And someone I deeply admire Angela Davis, who has been incredibly influential internationally in, 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 in building what is now seen as a prison abolition movement and just in terms of exposing 
conditions of prisons and also elevating the voices of imprisoned people and thinking about imprisoned intellectuals and all their contributions. And the history of prisons have also been the history of people trying, administrators and, and policy people trying to reform them. Every time prisons are reformed, it just it justifies incarceration. It buttresses a system that is at its very heart, one that holds people in captivity and produces suffering, isolation, um, the disruption of family, uh, what another prison abolition scholar I um, greatly admire, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, says also a premature vulnerability to death. I don't think that prisons can be reformed to be a benefit to society. I think that they are fundamentally flawed institutions that should be completely transformed into a totally different system for dealing with issues around justice, law-breaking, social moral codes that often get wrapped up in prison. The idea of crime and criminalization changes over time. But prisons have been like this fixture for a couple hundred years. And as a fixture, they are used to manage and incapacitate often the most vulnerable people. Um, so I don't think of prisons as um, a place that can be reformed in a way that somehow will benefit society. I think that they need to be abolished. It's interesting to think about how we could move towards that. I, I can't imagine when that might happen. I mean, realistically. Think about all the um, movements that were based on things that were yet to come. Mm-hmm. So, like, even ending slavery, right? Yeah. Like, some people believe that slavery could not, like, how are we going to do that? It's going to destroy the economy. It's going to, you know, um, quote, you know, descendants of Africans are not, quote, quite human. They shouldn't be able to vote. You know, all this kind of rationale for keeping people enslaved. Mm-hmm. And some people thought it was absolutely impossible to end that system. Things we don't imagine happening do happen. I absolutely believe that one of the gifts of black feminism and black feminist activism throughout the history of black feminist activism, um, which is the history of a a struggle struggle against um, oppression and inequality and premature death, is to completely believe another world is possible, one that we have not yet seen, right? Like, to be completely anchored in a belief that another world is possible, even if that we have not seen that world, that we can, but we can create the conditions for something much more, something, a world that allows for the broadest viability of life. Like, Miriam Akaba is a She's a well-known person, and she her activist work. I mean, what you see is all, some people like Kaba um, working often in locally in communities mm-hmm. to say, well, how do we create systems right here, right now that mm-hmm. don't involve policing and incarceration? Mm-hmm. So. How do we go into a situation where harm has taken place or where a breach, a legal or social breach has happened, 
and bring people together to figure out alternative ways of healing and a way that reinforces and strengthens communities and the people in the community instead of eviscerating and weakening weakening them, which is what, you know, scholars of prisons have shown how neighborhoods, communities, streets, families are literally decimated by the, the you know, hyper-incarceration of those people. I am Dariana Davis, a Bachelor of Arts in Media, Journalism, and Film Communications candidate at Howard University in Washington, D.C. What Nicole Fleetwood discusses throughout the interview are her books, her dedication to acknowledging and honoring incarcerated artists, and her strong ideologies. An interesting point of this interview is Fleetwood's book title, Marking Time. In the military, marking time means to march in place without moving forward. In other instances, the term means to observe the passage of time without doing anything. Based on this, I believe Fleetwood gave the book this title to contradict people's negative beliefs of incarcerated people. Though marking time is typically a noun, Fleetwood uses it as an action verb in her title to show how incarcerated people are actively developing themselves as artists and, as she states earlier in the interview, reclaiming their penal time. For incarcerated artists, Art is both a coping mechanism and a method of resisting the narratives placed on them by the state. For example, creating their portraits is a means to define themselves for themselves and create their own self-image. Art is their activism and, like all other forms of activism, requires these artists to dig deep in their imagination, dream their perfect world, and mimic it in their craft. Through her life's work, Dr. Nicole Fleetwood is shining light on the people in the darkest places and how they have used art to reimagine their own worlds and resist their current situations. Who, for you, you know, initially as you were growing up from family or from, you know, writers, teachers, really helped you um, re-examine some of that received cultural baggage and questioning? One of the things about being a living and breathing human is, right, is that we're constantly growing and learning. So, like, yeah. in the last 10 years, I've learned from the people who are the subject of my book. Yeah. Again, like I said, there's no way that I could have had that kind of political or aesthetic insight without having the opportunity to listen and learn from people. From early on as a child, I, I definitely, you know, delved into Black literature, more, more so than, like, Black history. I mean, I read lots of African-American women writers like Toni Morrison. That kind of literature really primed my mind um, very early on. And I've, I've always been someone who loved to read and just learn. And then learning from Black photographers like Gordon Park, artists like Betty Farr, just like continuing to grow and learn. So that for me, yeah, there's not just, there's not like one moment, but it's just being on a path where as my life is about learning. Right. And and often learning um, from people who don't have famous names. In terms of chapters of your book, what were the more difficult um, sections to, to write about? Solitary confinement. That was the very last chapter that I wrote. And what I realized after I finished the first draft and went through the manuscript is that in every 
chapter, there was like a really significant story about an, about someone in solitary confinement. And so I put all those stories together wow. and in like two weeks, maybe less, that chapter just emerged. Like wow. it was the quickest chapter to write, but it's also because I had all these stories and I think it's the most difficult, one of the most difficult to reread for me um, because it's just um, the kind of, the utter devastation that's happening to people in that in severe isolation, sometimes where they're not in direct contact with people for days, weeks, years, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very hard thing to witness, to be a witness to, even if it, it was just witnessing it through through the word. It's 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 incredibly. Um, it's important for us to pay attention and to bear witness, but it's also, um, I have a visceral reaction to, to rereading that chapter. Yeah, in terms of the, the solitary confinement, because it's, um, I think that we can, even if we've not spent time in prison, we can imagine that there's a still a social aspect, but just to be cut off from everything um, is just... And I guess I don't know. I don't really understand the point of it. Is almost to make you go crazy. So I look at these various cases where people are in severe isolation and they're still finding ways to make art about the torture of that experience, um, and including um, one artist named Ojuri Lucalo, who was part of the Black Liberation Army and spent mm-hmm. 22 years in a management control unit, which is a type of solitary confinement in the state of New Jersey. And during that time, he made these collages that were documenting his experience and the experience of other people who were held in isolation. I look at another person, um, Billy Fell, who actually died while in an isolation cell. But I look at a self-portrait that he makes, the correspondence that he had with um, an art teacher, Tracy Ziegler, who was generous to share me these really, these really painful letters that detail breakdown in interrelational subjectivity that's taking place over that period of, of being in isolation. In the school system, I, I understand, you know, um, students are taught about law and are taught about history. I don't know how they're informed about um, the prison industrial complex. To be honest, those who are most impacted, Black communities, Latinx communities, Indigenous communities, poor white communities, know much more about how prisons operate than wealthier, especially wealthy white communities where prisons are seem so removed from their day-to-day life. But for many millions of people who have been in prison, who are currently in prison, or who have loved ones in their prison, who are in prison, prisons are such a part of their day-to-day lives. And I mean, like, for the love for the mother or the partner, someone who's in prison, who's, you know, waiting, you know, for phone calls from incarcerated relatives who are literally becoming deep, more deeply impoverished by having to spend money on unbelievably expensive um, basic goods that you have to order through these um exorbitant prison vendors so there's all these ways that the people who are most impacted are the people who know the most about prisons and the people who have, who have quote the most power mm-hmm. um in terms of capital and 
and also political power are the people who see prisons often in the most abstract terms and see prisons as existing to keep public safety and also who rationalize that if someone's in prison, they've done something wrong and they deserve to be there. Um, you also touch on in the book about um, those, you don't always disclose what um, the, the reason for incarceration, but um, those, um, the Innocence Project. Right, and I, and I, I mean, and I, and I qualify that by saying that, like, this the book is not invested in categories of guilt and innocence, meaning yeah. that some people who argue for prison reform will argue that, oh, there are people who are in prison for things they didn't do, and therefore they should be released. And one of the arguments with that is that it it doesn't really it doesn't think about the fundamental wrongness of prisons and the structural inequalities um, that produce prison populations and that criminalize whole groups of people like just entire populations being criminalized and just kind of funneled through the system. So um, so I really. Um, caution the, for people placing a heavy emphasis on whether someone's guilty or innocent. Um, also, because of how state violence produces <laughs> crime and, and, and criminal activity, you know, there's just all there's so many things that need to be considered when we think about like who's in prison um, and. I think focusing on the binary of innocence and guilt often will just um, completely um, overshadow the complexity of like how systems of criminalization um, work, especially against young black children. As one as one group of people who are hyper profiled and hyper punished, and who are rarely seen as innocent. Um, but I do talk about artists who. Um, part of their self-narration is really important that they tell public the public that they were in prison for crimes they didn't commit and part of the art they make is also um, a response to being wrongfully convicted and for example Tyra Patterson is, is one of those people or um, Indume Olojishani um, Dean Gillespie so why did you choose to, to, to focus on um, visual art? Having limited exposure through the visiting room, um, I just started, you know, asking what other kinds of art practices are happening in these places and prisons and how are incarcerated people coming together or how does art kind of circulate? And so, like, for example, one of the things that I learned that, you know, really blew my mind is that in many prisons, um, the art room or informal art collectives are the only spaces where you'll see people are coming together across different races and ethnic groups. That art becomes a kind of safe space for um, cross-racial alliances and friendships. And But I think with the visual, I was really drawn to, like, so how do you work to get access to visual modes in a space that's about scarcity? How do you aestheticize? How do you make color? So these were some of the things that I felt like the visual, like visual art, allowed for a really rich exploration of some of those ideas. And now this is, uh, will have a, a life beyond the book, beyond your 
projects are going to be exposed um, to be exhibited at uh, MoMA P PS1 in, in April? Yes, I'm really excited, and 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 it and um, I think by the time this um, interview launches, it'll it'll be public. It's not even public yet. We haven't sent out the press release, but yeah. yeah. So um, based on the book, um, I am I've been um, fortunate to uh, work with MoMA PS1, and I'm curating an exhibit. It's going to be um, in six rooms of a gallery, it's about eight thousand square feet based on for the themes of the book and many of the works that in the book will be in the show, but the show will also um, extend beyond the book and incorporate some more recent works that I, I've, I've um, come across since actually finishing the writing of the book. That's still based on the themes and the ideas of the book where I'm talking about penal matter, which is the, the kind of use of, of the very limited material materials in prison mm -hmm. and penal p-e-n-a-l which is you know punishment and then they talk about time and space and these categories as being the conditions that frame art making in prisons and also art made by a lot of conceptual artists who are not in prison but who are interested in uh, committed to exposing incarceration and ending mass incarceration like Sable Ely Smith being um, someone who are in Maria Gaspar are two artists who are not in prison, but much of their work have dealt with prisons, and they are also on the show, as well as Jesse Crimes, Russell Craig, Tamika Cole, Mary Baxter, James Hoff. These are all um, formerly incarcerated people. The cover of my book is a piece called Pyrrhic Defeat by Mark Lofney, who's currently in prison, and it's an accumulated one work, but the work consists of over 400 portraits that he has sketched of people he's incarcerated with. So all of those portraits will also be on display in the gallery. So many of the, the artists, or a number of them, won't be able to see the show, though. Their family will be able to come? Yes, absolutely. And we'll definitely, for those who are, like for like, like Mark Lafney, he'll receive visual documentation and his, and his family will be invited. And we're also... Um, seeing if there's a way that maybe be able to project come in through a phone call or, um, you know, other ways of trying to incorporate presence of people who are um, held in captivity. With your books, exhibitions, and teaching, what would you like uh, young people to know and remember? I say in the introduction, and I mean it like with everything, every ounce of my being, I say, you know, this. And there's a pedagogy in this book. It's, there, there are lessons that are being offered by people who are um, held under horribly austere or punitive conditions. And the important lessons that we should pay careful attention, and these are lessons around how to create collectivity, how to, like, literally create, how to envision, how to project oneself, into worlds that have been, quote, cut off from them or where one is rendered invisible and really have to enforce and strategize under some of the most punitive forms of governance. And I, I think these are really, really important lessons for students, for of students of all ages. So I think we really need to pay attention to those lessons happening among incarcerated people. And that are lessons that are happening through art that are being aestheticized, but are teaching us all kinds of other things around around politics and freedom and, and what it means to, to, to create a meaningful life.
Yeah, thank you so much for all you've done to expand our understanding of the complexity of Black cultural history, visual and prison culture, for your important contributions to gender and feminist studies, for your examination of both racial icons and those who often remain invisible. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a, a great joy talking to you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dariana Davis. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.